Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So what are you supposed to do between each Engadget podcast? Wait in silence? I'm Matt Smith, and every morning I walk through the day's biggest tech stories. It's short, relevant, and ready for listening whenever you wake up. Find Engadget Morning Edition wherever you find your podcasts, or ask your smart speaker for the latest news from Engadget. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Engadget Podcast. I'm Reviews Editor Sherlyn Lowe, and my usual co-host Devendra is out dealing with an interstate move, so he's not here today. But not to worry, I have plenty, and I mean plenty, of other guests with me today, starting with Senior Editor Dan Cooper, all the way from London. He's going to be my guest co-host today. Dan, hello. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for having me. Dan's here because he's one of the people that covers wearables with me on uh, Engadget, and he covers a lot of health-related stuff. And today is kind of the episode uh, that I earmarked for this big telehealth dive. But I completely forgot that Apple had planned to have its developer conference, WWDC, this week. So we're going to have to break all that news down. If you're enjoying the show, as always, please make sure to leave us a review on iTunes, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and leave us a nice email at podcast.engadget.com. If you prefer, we have a nifty little context form on the page that this podcast episode is on on the Engadget website. So go over there to look for it. Apple had its WWDC developer conference this week, and one of our many guests to join us this episode to talk about that is senior mobile editor Chris Velasco. Hello, V. Hey, pal. How's it going? It's good, first of all. Happy birthday. I want the Thank whole world you. to know. I'm 24. <laughs> it feels so yeah, good. Right. <laughs> That's a lie. I'm in my early 30s. Thank you very much for reminding everybody. But it, I appreciate that. That's very sweet. You had to have a very heavy Apple week on your birthday week, which I don't know if it's fun uh, for you. Certainly I don't know if it's me. fun either, but it's definitely how it always works out. Like if you look at the last two years of like Apple public beta releases – they went yeah. out on my birthday both times. So, <laughs> that's Man, life. I mean, Dan, I mean, Dan, me and you, we were all like all hands on deck covering WWDC. And thank goodness everyone was kind of helping because there was a lot of stuff this year. Like, I don't think WWDC has ever been this busy, but am, am I wrong? Like, I mean, Apple definitely touches on all of these categories every year. But I think it's fair to say that this by far was one of the most, if not the most impactful WWDC in terms of just pure change, right? We saw a pretty significant redesign for iOS. Apple's taking Mm -hmm. that in a direction we've never really seen it go before. Obviously, there is the big transition to Apple Silicon, which is going to play out over the next two years or maybe a little bit less. Big changes for watchOS, including some that we've been waiting for for a long time. Mm -hmm. You can start a car with an iPhone. Like, the list really does go on. It was a jam-packed two-hour keynote for sure. And you guys, you and uh, our editor-in-chief, Dana Woolman, 
live blogged the event? Did that feel like breakneck pace for you? Is this the first time you had to like live blog WWDC from like remote, right? You weren't there in person. Yeah. So there wasn't the usual like pause for applause that like Apple, you know, does on his keynote. So you have time to breathe. I mean, look, there's a huge difference between trying to live blog an Apple event in a convention center versus the relative comfort of my basement where I have a bathroom and some coffee and power outlets. Like it was, it was bizarre. But mm-hmm. also because of the context around it, one of the easiest live blogs I've ever had to do. Oh, that's good. I'm glad it was at least a bit chill. Dan, what did you feel of watching WWDC from your time zone? It was super scattergun. I think just in terms of it, it wasn't as if they were sort of dropping these big bombs every sort of five or ten minutes. It was like mm. every minute and a half. Oh, by the way, we're adding this and boom, we're adding this. It was like um, it was like a shopping channel thing where they're like, but wait, here's more. And now you can get one with a blender and you can add uh, (laughs) app clips. And oh, by the way, we're switching to ARM. Boom. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. I mean, so let's, let's totally just do like break down the news. I think that the stuff that will mean the most, I think, to people is the iOS 14 updates. V, do you think? Yeah. I mean, it definitely, in terms of install base, this is the one that's going to affect the most people. And it's definitely going to take some people time to get used to what Apple has done. So for those who haven't really been keeping track of the news, iOS 14 can look like regular iOS if you want it to, but there are <laughs> but there is support for widgets now, which is something Apple sort of introduced a couple years ago with like the today view. Certain mm. apps would have widgets that lived in its own separate space, but now you can drag those out of the today view, resize them and put them anywhere on your home screen. Uh, obviously having more stuff on your home screen tends to push around the apps that you've already installed. So Mm -hmm. instead of just forcing you to have multiple app pages, there is now the app library, which is where you're basically meant to put all of the apps that you need sort of regularly, but don't really have to look at all of the time. I, I have to say as an Android user who was on Twitter during this keynote, People were like, Android's done this for years. And it, it was a lot of fun to watch. Do, I mean, like, do you think iOS, you know, took its time and has implemented this kind of better than Android? Yes and no. I think the widgets definitely look better than what we've seen on Android. I mean, you're, you raise a good point, right? Like widgets have been a part of the Android experience basically since like Android 1.0, the right. HTC G1, like... This was a foundational thing for Android, but it it does kind of feel like after a while, developers who had made widgets just didn't really seem to feel the need to update them or have them do more. Yeah, because people stop using them too, right? Like, everyone just wants icons now. Which which is like, you know, we'll see how that plays out on the Apple front. Like, maybe people on iOS just, they got used to not having widgets and now they don't need them. You know, that's a distinct possibility. But uh, in terms of the app library... That's another very sort of Android-y kind of uh-huh. addition to the experience. But I, I feel like I kind of prefer the simpler approach that you get on Android, right? So mm-hmm. with maybe not all Android devices, but a lot of companies use launchers where you have home screens and you know apps that you download sort of populate there and you can organize them as you wish. But then mm-hmm. you have the launcher, which is separate and just has all yep. of your apps. I kind of wish Apple had gone that direction because mm-hmm. what we have with the app library, it's it's meant to be a little more AI infused. There's more mm-hmm. sort of intelligent curation going on, but it doesn't always seem to make sense, right? Like Apple has said mm-hmm. that 
apps that go into the library get sorted automatically. Those categories roughly correspond to the categories in the app store, but not always. So yeah. we've we've heard of situations where like the lifestyle folder has like 90% of your apps and then all of the other ones that fit more neatly into other buckets get like sections of their own. Like it's not a yeah. completely uniform thing yet. And it, it feels like Apple still really needs to tune some of this stuff before the public beta is released next month. Okay. I mean, I, I completely agree on Android. These suggested apps still aren't great. I mean, also like coming off of the Android 11 beta coverage that we did maybe a week or two ago, it was interesting to see what Apple was bringing compared to what Android 11 was playing around with. So we'll, we'll see. Dan, you're an iOS user, Yes. Yes. Oh I'm kind of, oh I'm a never I'm Android type. I'm sorry to say. No. How <laughs> dare you? You're never getting... Never getting another Android device to review here from here again. Never. I'm very sorry. <laughs> it's fine. I can, what do you think? So, the one thing that I'm not concerned about, but it's like, if you have the, the swipe right sort of mm -hmm. on the left pane, you already have all of those kind of the things where you would put your notifications and your widgets and everything else. Yeah. And I kind of feel like Apple, instead of doing one thing well, you now have... A pull-down menu at the top, which has notifications. You can now put those widgets on your home screen. And you can have the, the right swipe to go to this left contextual menu that also has all of this stuff. And I feel like rather than them just doing one thing and doing it well, you mm. now have three kind of half-assed ways of doing this. And... <laughs> The thing about with this this AI curation is, as, as V says, Apple and AI and machine learning are not necessarily, especially when you, you know, it's about anticipating what you need. It's mm. never been very good at that. And, no, not yet. And I'm really dubious. It's a nice idea to cut down on the amount of craft on all those home screen mm. pages. But the idea that because they never found a way of letting you organize back in back in like the iphone 4 and previous era mm -hmm. you could hook your home you could hook your phone up to itunes and actually organize your home screen with keyboard and mouse so you could mm -hmm. like manage all of these hundreds of apps on your phone really easily when that link kind of got severed and you had to do it all on the device it became an absolute nightmare and mm -hmm. apple still have never really worked on a solution for that and all of this now seems like they're just desperately trying to find a way of putting the the mayonnaise back in a jar not very well i mean i mean there's still a lot more to ios 14 we kind of have to go through but will i think you do raise a very good point that we might get back to i do think though that like there are things that apple does well that i as an android user can only look on uh Longingly, I think messages, when, when the keynote was getting around to the messages updates, I was like, holy crap, this is great. I don't know about you guys, because I don't know that everyone reacted the same way I did, but as someone stuck on like really terrible text-based messaging, uh, it, it was nice to see the group features, the inline replies, the fact that you can react to individual messages for a while now, it's nice. V, what did you think? Yeah, I mean... No one really knows this, but like you and I and like a lot of our mutual <laughs> friends like communicate exclusively in Telegram. So yeah. the idea that like now we can share those features with other people, yep. it's like finally, like yep. it, it, it's not a huge deal for me necessarily because at this point I've been very successful in convincing everyone I know to be on Telegram. Right, same. But if you're, if you're an iMessage diehard, if you're the kind of person who just like refuses to talk to anyone else unless they have yeah. a blue text bubble – 
sure, great. Welcome to like two years ago. We were glad to have you. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the features introduced are very Slack-like or things that WhatsApp and Telegram already sort of have. But I mean, I, I, I still have friends who just can't seem to get off of text and, and move on to something like Telegram. I mean, then, I mean, this is less of an, I don't know, do you use Telegram to chat with your friends or some other chat app or are you reliant on like iMessage? So I don't think I use iMessage for anything other than like the text message uh, that I get from my doctor's surgery, because (laughs) everyone I know is WhatsApp. And I think if you ask, if you ask anyone in Britain, they'll probably say the same thing. WhatsApp has basically swallowed everything else whole. And I have mm-hmm. tried to get them onto Telegram, but I think it's that stickiness. Uh, you know, if you, if I was a if I was a a thought leader, I would say it's about network effects. <laughs> uh, it's the network effect, you know. WhatsApp uh, with the Facebook integration, everything else has got the network effect. Is that your is that your thought leader voice? Yeah. Okay. If I ever yeah, get I to love, do a TED I love talk. when you put on your Thinkfluencer hat. <laughs> <laughs> I am a thing. No, I'm not. I could try. <laughs> you are sort of, but um. <laughs> Yeah, as a consequence, iMessage just isn't a thing. And I know that there's like the, you know, the the text message bubble thing is a thing in the mm. US, but mm. it kind of feels like, you know, it's kind of like everyone complaining that their horse isn't fast enough when we were over here going, oh, yes, well, we're driving these things called cars now. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, look. I, I still think that that's an interesting thing to see coming from the land uh, where RCS still isn't real yet. Uh, some of the updates I mentioned on messages, just so the listener that might not be up to date uh, can uh, know, are like, yeah, like you can have a group icon for, like you can use an emoji or a picture for your group text now in iMessage, which, wow, nice. Uh, you can have, again, you can reply directly to someone's message. You can have inline replies. So I think they show up threaded uh like in slack so I, I think those are nice ways to like organize communication but again like everyone has pointed out this is not very new there were a whole lot of other updates just for ios alone and we haven't even got around to the rest of the stuff yet so like i'm gonna just quickly shout through some of them maps got a bunch of updates you've got like some environmentally more conscious uh routes i guess ev driving routes you've also got bike routes with better information included uh siri is getting less intrusive on your screen there's also some new translation features there's this thing called app clips holy crap there's just like a lot v did i miss out anything no no i think you hit the you hit the (laughs) big stuff no i think you hit the big stuff but the thing is like each of those things is this now each of those things is like the subject of like a 25 minute conversation by themselves right call out tell me tell me what your favorite and like why i guess app app clips is like definitely where i'm spending most of my brain processing time i don't know that i'm necessarily hype i think i'm really spending this time trying to figure out when i would legitimately use one of these things like Mm. i I get what apple is after and to all of the people out there saying that this existed in android yeah absolutely correct google play instant apps have been a thing for a while but i don't know i people people think i'm biased because i spend a lot of time (laughs) recording on apple but i use android a lot and i cannot tell you the last time i saw an instant android app in use yeah yeah, so, I agree. So seeing Apple approach this with a very sort of situational and in some cases very rooted in physical approach, right, with yeah. QR codes and NFC tags, it sounds great. And I think some of the things Apple has done around app clips makes a lot of sense. Like, for example, if you install an app clip 
for, say, parking meters, which is, mm-hmm. I think, an example they pointed out during the keynote. Some people were concerned that, you know, what happens to the app clip once you're done with that transaction? Do you have to go through the whole process again? So what happens is the app clip stays on the phone for a couple days. If it doesn't Mm. get used, iOS deletes it. If it does get used again, developers then have the ability to serve different experiences. So, you know, you could switch to like a top-up mode as opposed to a new parking meter session view. Um, Wow. So like there's there's a lot of there's a lot of really interesting ways for developers to kind of build core functionality into these very very quick experiences. But I don't think anyone has a really great idea of what the ideal app clip situation looks like. I I think yeah, you're right. Like a lot of the scenarios they painted during the keynote seem very interesting to me. Um and you know what? To the people who are shouting that Android has had instant apps, I think the fact that a lot of people forgot speaks to how little it was used or maybe how subtle it was. And if, if that's the case, that's a good thing. But I've been on Android forever and I haven't seen an instant app pop up in like three or four years. So it's it's. I think when Apple introduces something like that and people get convinced, that's when we see uh, uptake in, in use. Like, like when they made Apple Watch. Now everyone's wearing an Apple Watch and smartwatches had been around forever before that. Well, you're not wearing an Apple Watch. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm wearing I'm wearing one of my many Android watches, which uh, Dan will no longer get from me. By the way, no longer. Uh, but Dan, what do you? What was your favorite? Do you know what I wanna I wanna talk about app clips. I wanna be like two. The, oh, yeah, so but let's it's, do it. Yeah, miscongeniality over I'm here. I'm sorry. App clips. I'm so sorry. Um, I, <laughs> no, I feel like it. I'm gonna be like the Rush Limbaugh of this now. But I think the existence of app clips is basically an indictment of Apple's app development over the last maybe four or five years. Because if you, I mean, in the example in the keynote where they're like, you go, Mm -hmm. you walk up to a scooter and you download the scooter app, except it's a super compressed version of the the scooter app that has Mm -hmm. to be no bigger than 10 megabytes. Like Mm -hmm. if you're in a bad signal area, which, you know, they do exist. If your coverage sucks, that's still going to be um, a laborious thing to do. And the Isn't fact- it better than installing an entire app that might be like 50 megabytes instead? Okay, so why why is that app 50 megabytes? Like all apps should be about 10 megabytes. Like the most comprehensively large they app, should. right? Should they be should, but there's no megabytes. such restriction right now. No, there yeah, isn't. Yeah, yeah. And like the Facebook app is something crazy. I think the last time I did an update, mm-hmm. it was like 200 megabytes. Something. Yep. That, no, that is just lazy <laughs> development. It's lazy <laughs> backwards development where everyone just doesn't think about usability it's it's the chrome problem whereby all of these various departments in google's just kind of pile on crap onto this thing <laughs> to make it buggy and and a ram hog so, and really inefficient and because so, there's no incentive to like s- streamline it so now yeah. we're having to basically create apps they're apps again except they're mm. small again i just make <laughs> them make them do it properly the first time rant ends i I don't know i take i take issue with this idea of apps having not been made quote unquote properly for the last however many years like (laughs) i I think we can agree there are definitely situations where you want an app that does a lot of things like i am very glad that facebook does a bunch of garbage do i use it most of the time no but i use it sometimes and i leave the app on my phone in case that happens but if i'm buying a sandwich I don't want to, I'm not going right. to bother with like the Togo right. app or the Subway app. Like exactly. I'm going to go in and like engage in this very specific transaction, be done with it, presumably on my phone, assuming the coverage is good, 
within a couple seconds because, you know, yeah. I signed in with Apple and paid with like my Apple Pay situation. Mm-hmm. And like, that's it. You, yep. you're absolutely right in that some apps don't need to be super complex, but that's not Apple's fault. That's the fault of the developers who just want more. They've been taught that more is better when it comes to stickiness. And, you know, that's is not that always stickiness? the case. Is that stickiness? For example, VI, I mean, I use, I have a loyalty card with like a salad place because I'm healthy and everything. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, I go in there for a juice every week. Well, in the past, um, after a workout class, and I have the loyalty app on my phone because, yeah, they give me points whenever I buy another smoothie, and I collect those points. And then I think that's the reason I need to have the app is to keep collecting those points. Otherwise, if I could just like scan a, a promotional code I used to have through an app clip, I would totally just do that and never stick around for the points after. You know what I mean? Does that make any sense? Am I talking? no, no? I get it, but let me let me throw yeah. this out there and see if this like kind of addresses what you're talking about. Like mm-hmm. there, like there's not gonna, there's never going to be a situation where an app clip exists independently of an app. Like Apple has made it very clear. Right. Like you as a developer have to submit the app and the app mm. clip at the same time. If you submit just mm. the app clip, even if it's perfectly functional by itself. It will be rejected. So I, see. I, I think there's this concern that we're looking at a potential fork in the road where developers will try and choose one sort of paradigm for app creation, you know, mm. big, full-featured, classic experience versus these very lightweight transactional ones. Mm. But they're, they're by design from Apple meant to be tied together all the way through. Okay. Does it? Here's, yeah. here's the thing I want to jump in though, right? If these are if these are apps that are primarily focused on on transactions, and we'll come back to your smoothie place or your salad place example. I want to go back there too. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's what Apple Pay is for. Like, surely it would be easier if Apple simply kind of did the 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 hard yards in terms of getting business listings, uh, getting engagement on that level, and then when you go mm-hmm. to your map. You can maybe pre-order through the map. You turn up, you you tap with Apple Maps, uh, sorry, Apple Pay, mm-hmm. and you pay, and then yeah. that way there is you're not troubling your your cellular bill by having to download yet another app, even if it is one that disappears. You, it, there are better ways of doing this. Sure. What happens if I don't have Apple Pay and I'm on a Google Pay? You well, so you're not going to have Google Apple Pay anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> So that is that is another thing that I think there's there's a little confusion around. Um, so I can't vouch for Google Pay, but I have been told yeah. that if you are wanting to use a service that has an app that you might have an account with, but you, you know, it's it's you log in through Facebook or Google or something mm. that isn't signed in with Apple, that continues to work. I'm also told that if you have a payment method that isn't stored in Apple Pay, you can choose to use that as well. The exact mechanics okay. of how that's presented to you as a user. I'm not sure because I and basically everyone else, like we don't know what app yeah, clips really look like. Yeah. But like there will be support in there for like it's not going to be a, a blatant attempt to like squeeze you into the Apple ecosystem. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It might be, but I it's mean, not I mean, designed so that for, way. For me it's not. I mean, no, I was more taking issue with the fact that Dan's like, Well, app clips are good, but why don't you use Apple Pay instead? And I'm like, Well, I don't have Apple Pay. Well, how else is Apple gonna get me to use an you know, iPhone if, or how's the developer going to get me to use their app if I don't have Apple Pay or, or serve me promotions? You know what I mean? Like, obviously they should then work with Google on there. And so the, it's, it basically, 
I think creating an app for a store owner or something like that, that's their way of providing kind of a platform agnostic experience because otherwise they have to go through the process of like talking to Apple Pay and then talking to Google Pay and talking to WePay and whatever and then making sure that they're, you know, qualifying for all of that. I mean, I can see why for the consumer it would be obviously better if it were all just bundled into Apple Pay, Google Pay, whatever else pay. Um, But I guess this is just easier for a business, right? To like create one thing, hopefully this supports all, even though they also have to support protocols within their app anyway to like, I I mean, I'm getting deep into some sort of developer speak here. But but you know what I mean? Like you have to use, you have to, of course, adopt. But I, I, I suspect, I have a feeling that it might be easier for them just to bundle all of that into their one app platform. Uh. But Dan, you were saying we want to go back to my smoothie place. Yeah, I, yeah, I want to go back. I want to go and get a smoothie right now. I do. <laughs> I will fly over to get a smoothie. We will. <laughs> yeah, can we well, do this? We're sitting under blankets right now, and it's really hot. So the smoothie sounds really good. I mean, yeah. So okay, but other than iOS, there was like updates across the Apple ecosystem. We had we heard about iPad OS, Watch OS, Mac OS, pencil car key, airport, airport, airports, AirPods. <laughs> um, what came? What came out of the iPadOS update? So the thing to bear in mind about iPadOS is that even though Apple kind of treats it as a project with its own priorities and objectives, it's still based on iOS 14, right? right? So like everything that we've talked about, including app clips, which doesn't really seem like it would make as much sense on a big screen, that's yep. coming to the iPad experience too. The okay. the handful of like very iPad-specific things are... They're cool. They're great if you're, especially great if you're like a pencil person, right? Like I'm not a huge doodler or note taker, but you can now with uh, the new scribble feature write in any text field and have that automatically Mm -hmm. converted into actual manipulable text. Like you can copy and paste it and do whatever you have to do. It does seem really quite nice. It's, It's basically what we saw on like... The Galaxy Note. Right? I was gonna say it's the pen. It's the S Pen. It's basically a, the S Pen. It's the S Pen, but like a size someone would actually want to use. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I talk about size a lot. What are you gonna do? Go for um, it. Yeah. Beyond that, there are some additions to ARKit that kind of take advantage of what Apple is now doing in iPads with mm-hmm. the lidar sensor. So improved. Death recognition, we're seeing Apple sort of move into very locational AR with this feature called Location Anchors, which basically gives developers the ability to tie some piece of AR content to a very highly specific point on the globe. So anyone in that area can whip out their phone and point it at the same direction and more or less see the same thing. Yeah, uh, I mean, a lot of AR has been working on that recently like location-based ar has been the next step and next generation so it's nice to see apple do this i i i agree with you i'm i'm all about the pencil updates but the rest of the ipad os updates don't seem to be that impressive to me just because like you said it's all the ios stuff no i totally agree we got the bifurcation of ios and ipad os last year and i feel Mm. like that's that's like as big as apple needed to get for a while I think yeah. what's what's really kind of interesting is when you look at the design of something like iPad OS now, which has like new menu bars and like sidebars and wow. stuff. Like there are there are definite nods to like a quote unquote more traditional computer experience. And I think it's yeah. also interesting to see that the inverse of that play out on Mac OS, right? You've got a control mm-hmm. center, mm-hmm. you've got really big targets that look like they they might be able to be used by fingers at some point like we're, we're looking at the desktopification of ipad os and the ipadization Mobile. of mac yeah. os look 
I mean, I I sniggered a little bit while you were talking about iPadOS there, but I need to remember that Android doesn't have an equivalent yet, so I need to eat some humble pie right now. I mean, no, you're fine, but like, let's take this opportunity to call on the Android developers of the world. Like, yeah. hey, tablets are tablets are a thing. Can you just like do better tablet apps? Like, they're still here. Maybe there's not as much money there, but like, I'll pay for it. That's something, right? No, uh, no, no, no not, not you. Okay, uh, we gotta we gotta keep going, you guys, because there's a lot. So there was also macOS, like you said, V. But before that, watchOS seven got a bunch of updates. Dan, do you want to fill us in on what you know were the updates for watchOS seven? So the big one uh, or the big ones are sleep mm. tracking. Finally, sleep tracking yeah. on Apple Watch. Holy it's crap. only taken us two million years before yep. uh, an Apple Watch offers at least first party sleep tracking. Yep. Yep. Uh, and I'm I kind of feel like that's long the overdue, biggest. but also oh, yeah. it's still an indictment that they advertise Apple Watch's battery life for eighteen hours, so you still have to like oh, yeah. charge it once every twenty four hours. Mm-hmm. Anywhere you're meant to. Um and then you get the hand washing, which is very important yep. right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Can and- can we just really quickly talk about how like technically specific this thing is like it senses the motion of your hands and matches it against what it thinks hand washing looks like and then uses the microphone to listen to the sound of running water to confirm (laughs) that's my favorite part honestly that's my favorite part because like that's the accelerometer can only get you that far you 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 never know what else a person could be doing with their hands with those motions let's just (laughs) man okay family show i don't want to come on you could be you could be greeting a person the Chinese way when you're saying Kong Si Fa Tai Happy New Year. Uh, that could be similar to hand washing looking. But the sound, turning on the microphone, I think, is is uh, both an, a genius move and a potential privacy issue. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, there are also things that could sound like water and soap. But anyway, uh, oh, wow. <laughs> so yeah. what else comes from? Let's talk about what? dance tracking. Yeah, dance <laughs> tracking. Very, very another very interesting feature that got added to WatchOS seven in the new fitness app. Dan, what do you think? I think if they can if they can pull this off, mm-hmm. and I, I will wait. I will reserve judgment until I try it. But I'm really <laughs> excited if they're able to um, judge dance or even just. Mm-hmm. If it's just a case whereby you hit dance and it it just calculates whatever random movements of your arm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, okay, we'll just write all this off as dance and your heart rate is 102 or whatever, therefore you yeah, have done that's some what I think. Um It's probably the the thing that a lot of people who go to like Zumba and classes yep. of that nature have been yep. waiting for and... Um, I'm reckon... raising my hand. You can't see it, but it's no. me. Basically. <laughs> but it's it kind of rounds out. I don't think there are many other kind mm-hmm. of big categories of sports or, or you know vigorous exercise activities that Left. that Apple could really add to the watch. Yeah, yeah. We were just talking about accelerometer stuff. I mean, the way that uh, Apple is implementing this is interesting. They've decided that you know they have to com- combine the horizontal movement of your arms, the vertical up and down of your legs when you're dancing to detect when you are dancing. And I think that that's the only way that they're using it to detect that you're dancing and then count it towards your exercise. Um, I don't think that they're being more specific than that is what I'm saying. So once they recognize that you've started some sort of dance, they're going to like track your heart rate and your calories burned maybe. Um, but for me, again, I've spent like all of this pandemic playing just dance as a way to get my workout on. So 
I think that for me, this is going to be a good feature if I ever get to try it. And yeah, Dan, you're right. Sleep tracking at last is really, really important. Everyone else has got it already, so Apple's late to that. But Dan's, they are the first, I think, to to introduce something like because I haven't seen it on Fitbit, I haven't seen it on Garmin, I haven't seen it seen it on Wear OS or Tizen OS. So, I mean, I, I'm trying to drag dredge the the back of my memory just in case someone like Withings or someone had it as like a as one of those auto detect ones. Yeah, yeah, but maybe it, nothing's coming but, up. I don't think so. No, no one's really thought about dance this way yet. So I think that good on Apple for including that. You sure. know, next time you go clubbing, when we go into clubs again, you could be working out according to Apple. Um, <laughs> v, what do you think about the macOS updates? Because they're now getting a bit more mobile-like. Eh, it's eh. fine. It's oh, fine. No. Well, no. so here's the thing. We, we sort of knew going into this very little about the macOS experience, and, mm-hmm. which is a surprise because that usually gets leaked Maybe not Everywhere. as thoroughly as everything else, but like it gets some attention. And going into this, we knew nothing. So things like this redesign, it's a pleasant surprise, I guess. I appreciate the new aesthetic, although I know a lot of people who just think it's hideous. But but to touch on what I said earlier, like, yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of like it's it's now easier to see how Mac OS and something like iPad OS could converge or at least share a lot of the same design elements down the road. But obviously, the big macOS news is that Apple is moving to Apple Silicon with mm-hmm. its ARM chips. So developers are going to have to figure out how to translate, recompile, reconfigure, whatever their yeah. existing apps to work with this new hardware. I think it will be interesting to see. I think that you know, computer companies have been trying to make some sort of version of their software work on ARM forever. I mean, we know Windows on ARM is a very, very um, good it's, effort on their it's part. It's hit or miss, shall we say. <laughs> I don't even really know. I wanted to say, like, they're they're challenged. But, but it will be interesting to see how Apple deals with it. I think we heard today that um, some apps might not work. I can't remember exactly what. The, was it Basecamp or something Boot like that? Camp. that might not, Bootcamp. Bootcamp. Basecamp is something else, isn't it? Um... So so it, it does sound like Apple has a lot to do. And I think a two-year transition, therefore, makes sense. But why do you think then they had to announce it now, so far ahead of time? Well, they've got to give developers as much of a head start as possible, right? Because mm-hmm. if the end result is all of their Mac products are running on ARM by, you know, the end of 2021, early 22, like whatever exactly the time frame is, mm-hmm. Some apps, as they pointed out several times during the keynote, you <laughs> like some people have already been working with the sort of universal binary in mind. So for yeah. those people, you like tweak your code, you recompile, and you're basically good to go. Yeah. But there are obviously a lot of other players, including I would assume quite big ones, that mm. maybe weren't as privy to some of this stuff in advance. And mm. they're starting from scratch, right? Like Microsoft, we know they're working on bringing the Office suite to new Macs yeah. as a universal binary. But as we pointed out, bootcamp doesn't work. We don't know like what else that they offer would not function at this point. Ditto for Adobe, right? Like we've yep. seen in the keynote that Photoshop seems to work, Lightroom seems to work, which is astonishing because oh, yeah. on on every machine I've ever used it on, Lightroom runs like effing garbage. So to see it work, <laughs> to see it work pretty well on an ARM powered Mac, that's very heartening. But 
these are huge players, right? Like, who yeah. knows how everyone else is going to manage this? Caveat that obviously we were watching it during a keynote. It was very well rehearsed. In fact, it was like a pre-recorded keynote. Oh, yeah. So they like, shot this thing way in advance. Yeah. So obviously it's going to be smooth. Lightroom will likely still run effing slow and garbage on an ARM-based Mac. Um Dan, you sometimes cover window piece, Windows PCs for us. What do you think about this? I am excited to see what happens. And I'm excited yeah. to see how they manage the transition. In a, in a way, it's mm. kind of, it's funny because they're, they're basically going back to an RASC thing from, because PowerPC was essentially um, RASC. So this is kind of familiar territory. And what was weird was just how similar the way that they mm. sold it was if you go back and watch the the steve jobs video from the the power pc transition oh, man, yeah in wow. many ways it felt like they'd just taken that script yeah. and just rewritten it to sound different um yeah but the um the thing that really interests me about all of this mm. is and 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 Shay, you probably are the person to ask about this because, like, an, an, <laughs> when a company is buying an Intel chip, they're not paying retail price. But for some of those kind of higher end Core i seven chips, mm-hmm. they're probably mm-hmm. costing maybe two hundred dollars per unit. Maybe a I couldn't bit tell you that. the exact price, but, but you, I mean, it would be lot. expensive for sure. Yeah. And so I'm really curious as to whether Apple says, okay, well now we're not um slinging intel stuff Mm, mm -hmm. and we're not paying these hideous licensing fees and we're not buying these chips from a third party Mm -hmm. whether the arm macbook pro 2022 edition Mm -hmm. is two or three hundred dollars less because they're saving all of that money knowing apple i suspect (laughs) that they won't yeah (laughs) like like there's a there's like a firm consumer understanding of what a macbook (laughs) pro costs they they could take money off the table, but it's Apple, so we know that they won't. Oh yeah, they won't. They'll probably like bundle in some software license things and then say like, "Here's the extra goodies you get for that money." Um, maybe I don't know. I will say that like um, I feel a little bit bad for Intel. Um, Apple seems to have completely ditched them now. There's no more Intel chips being used. I think uh, after this transition, am I wrong, V? I, I can't remember now. They will continue to make Intel-powered Macs for a little while, yeah. but yeah, once once they've like made the shift, that's it. Yeah. Although, yeah. hang on, so... isn't uh, I've opened my mouth? That was a mistake. Isn't Thunderbolt three? <laughs> I think they'll still have to buy like some kind of panel from Intel if they want to keep supporting Thunderbolt three. Which is why we're hearing some rumors or rumblings of support for Thunderbolt 4, which might move away from that. I don't know fully yet the details on that, so I don't like I, I might yeah. have it wrong eventually. But Thunderbolt 3 is kind of an Apple Intel thing anyway, right? It's like I think, not purely yeah. Intel. Intel's gonna so, lurk around. They might not be the they might not be the star of the show. They'll anymore. still make some money yeah. off of some licensing, but probably and and elsewhere too. They're they're definitely facing stiff competition from AMD, Qualcomm. So you know, honestly, good luck Intel. I know we were talking about Apple, but we've pivoted to saying good luck Intel. Um, <laughs> there were other things new with Mac OS. I mean, Safari got a huge redesign. It's now customizable, or more than before. You get like better using tabs but i am still going to use chrome everywhere i go v did safari interest you i like safari in theory if only because if i ever go out and cover an event live again safari is the browser you have to use on a mac so you're 
computer doesn't die in an hour and a half. Ah, the battery saving. I mean, and that's the thing, right? Like Safari is great at that. ARM in general is great at that. So if if Apple is able to give us the battery life that they're promising Mm. without compromising too much in performance, that's going to be really big. But but Safari specifically has a lot going for it. Like it's very clean. It's very fast. Mm -hmm. Tabs are better now. You can now like... You get better extensions. You now have the yeah. ability to like click on a shield in the address bar to see what trackers are being used on a site that you go to. Like Safari, it's never really been Apple's most popular yeah. bit of software. It gets kind <laughs> of a bad rap, honestly. Yep. But they're making changes. Like It's getting better. It's not going to change your mind if you don't use it already. But it's nice to see that they're still plugging away on it. You mentioned the shield thing in Safari. Uh, privacy was one of the things that Apple pointed out as part of its like keynote there are a lot of other things i think though like i mean again we've mentioned before pencil airports airports i keep saying airports <laughs> airpods car key lots of other stuff go check out engadget.com for the full coverage for all of that stuff but i do want a quick shout out to privacy i think that some parts of the privacy stuff like uh giving you i don't know like more temporary permission settings for certain uh apps and websites uh was a little bit of catch up to the google front but otherwise, I think Apple has always done maybe a better job with privacy than others. Uh, v, did any of the privacy stuff interest you at all? I mean, it does to an extent, but not to the mm. point where I'm like, like gung ho about it. Mostly because yeah. <laughs> most of my information was like, I'm I'm in the keynote, I'm live blogging. Let's internalize oh, sure. as much of this as possible and then just kind of move on. But Apple has, if nothing else, always talked the best game about privacy. They're yeah. very very good at it. I will say Android's approach to notifications with respect to permissions yeah. probably feels a little better, just yes. because I don't know. Like they've had more time more to think control. about it. Also yeah, more exactly. Control. Yeah, for the user. Dan, what do you think? The report cards in the App Store, that's going to be such an inflammatory thing. It's brilliant. It's so (laughs) clever because, uh, again, you'll go to download Google Mail. You've got to download Facebook, all of these rival apps. Mm -hmm. And Apple is, you know, there's going to be this pop-up saying, oh, by the way, here are all the the things we admit to doing to you. um, And... Apple Apple basically win twice over because they say, oh, you know, we care about you. We're empowering you to make the decision right. and then yeah. force all of their rivals to basically cop to doing some things that people may not be comfortable with. I mean, a lot of people aren't going to care, but I reckon there will be a small percentage mm-hmm. of people who will see all of the things that these apps uh, are, are looking yeah. for and think, oh, maybe I'll switch to Apple's own calendar app. I like that during the keynote they used it. Uh, they use a metaphor of a nutritional label for your privacy as as what this means, what this report card is. Uh, reminds me of I think it was just last episode when Davinder was talking about Logitech doing something similar for the amount of carbon it uses in its products. Uh, nutritional labels for the greenness or the carbon friendliness of their products. So it seems like people are being are adopting something similar across the board. Um, again, a lot of these things are developer stage. We haven't seen them roll out yet. We can expect to see them later this year. Yeah, clearly we're exhausted from talking about WWDC, but we'd love to hear what your favorite announcement out of Apple's developer conference was. So make sure to send us an email. Tell us all about it at podcast at Engadget.com. V, you still have so much work to do. Uh, we're going to let you go. Thank you so much for joining us today, V. Thanks for having me, guys. It's always Happy fun. Day, v. Oh, thanks, Dan. <laughs> Thank you. 
now we have another guest joining us on the show today. We have Chrissy Farr, a health and health tech reporter from CNBC, here to talk all about the telehealth and healthcare industry. Chrissy, how are you doing? I am good. Thanks for having me on. Oh my gosh, thank you for joining us so early in the day for you. I feel really bad about it. <laughs> oh, it's not too early. I'm kind of an early riser, so this is great. I love the big Brit energy we've got going on right now. Uh, <laughs> we're going to keep talking a little bit. I know we might be a bit tired of talking about Apple, but you did also recently publish an article on CNBC, Christy, about what Apple may or may not be doing in the healthcare industry. Can you tell us a little bit about your report? Yeah, of course. So I've been covering Apple since, and its moves into health for a long mm -hmm. time now. Um, for for a couple of years, they, they weren't saying anything about it, but just hiring a lot of people out of the industry mysteriously. Yeah. Um, and then finally, they, they started to speak up and, and they came out with the watch and we started to see things like heart rate tracking. And over time, mm -hmm. that became more sophisticated. Um, I think one of the problems that they face and, and almost every tech company faces mm -hmm. is that they have a hard time straddling kind of the line between what's wellness mm -hmm. and what's medical. Yeah. And it's really hard to do both well. Mm -hmm. um, Apple's tried to do both. Um, and, you know, they've had some successes on, on both sides. But we didn't really see too many medical features out of out of this year's WWDC. And yeah. a, a lot of folks were expecting them. Um, so it was a bit of disappointment in the medical community. And, and we did see a, a lot more wellness, um, yeah. which makes me wonder, you know, have they have they finally decided to pick a lane or um, or are they going to continue to try to do both and see, you know, what users are more attracted to? Um, but I think I think, you know, it's just my personal opinion that they should pick medical um, because I think that makes their devices more of a, a need to have. And it's actually for a huge population of people. I do think that there are challenges on that front. I'm sure you know better than I do. I think there is like FDA approval in, in the way there's the, you know, how accurate can some of these sensors be? There's also consumer trust. I, I mean, we can talk a lot about that. We we did just go over how Apple announced this um, hand wash detection feature for watchOS uh, at WWDC. What did you think about that? Was that like a good health play, you think? Yeah, so I was initially thinking, oh, that's that's actually pretty cool because most of us don't wash yeah. our hands correctly. I I have trouble with washing them for a full twenty seconds. It's actually a really long time, mm -hmm. and so that is you know somewhat useful for consumers. And I I wondered could it be used by doctors and nurses? And then you know very quickly heard from them that actually you're you're really told to take your jewelry off when you're in a patient mm -hmm. room um, just for purposes Ooh. of hygiene. And then you know you're you're also supposed to wash up to the wrist and so I don't know, you mm -hmm. know how that would you know the watches you're supposed to wear it on the wrist so that that piece of it too seemed less well thought through um, but I yeah. think it's just sort of a generalized consumer tool like here's how to wash your hands a bit better like that's you know it's a, it's something and at least they're doing something to acknowledge COVID in this yeah. environment I think um I mean I'm not sure if you've seen some of the news coming out but a lot of wearable companies have also been sort of jumping on that whole like trying to acknowledge or do something with COVID um, bandwagon I guess. Dan has sort of been following some of this quite closely. Aura, uh, that smart ring company, apparently is working with the NBA to, to figure out some COVID early detection uh, based on temperature, body temperature tracking. Dan, do you want to tell us a little bit about it? So long story very short, the idea is that and it's a very crude <laughs> way of detecting and certainly there are issues with um just being able to get good 
temperature detection in general um, when mm. you've got such a small surface area. But the idea is that you will wear the this particular smart ring for a prolonged period of time and then it will be able to identify whether there is a spike in your temperature, um, which mm. would then be sort of an early warning for the symptoms of COVID. I mean, Fitbit also announced recently they're, well, somewhat recently, they're doing some sort of study by using the data that they're gathering from their devices to see how they can help to detect COVID symptoms early. Uh, Chrissy, have you heard about that? Yeah, I've been I've been tracking this as well. Yeah. Um, it seems somewhat promising, but really early. And I, I think, you know, I'd love to see the, the data. Um, I'm glad they're starting to do some studies around this, mm-hmm. um, but I could see it you know, temperature, for instance, isn't isn't a particularly perfect system because there's mm. lots of folks out there that that have are pre symptomatic and and don't have a fever. Um, so you know, you, maybe you catch some, but not all. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it seems like it, at best, this is sort of a tool for a for a larger toolkit versus something that we rely on. Do you think do you th- that that's yeah? Go ahead, Dan. Well, I was just going to say, do you think that um, one of the challenges that all wearable makers have is that there's an expectation or a pressure that they will be able to discover a magic bullet that will enable sort of mass screening. But of course, one of the painful truths about COVID is that it doesn't necessarily manifest in the same way with everyone. Absolutely. And that's that's part of the problem is that, you know, there's some people are asymptomatic. Some people, you know, don't experience symptoms for three or four days. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it is different for everyone. And then you have, you know, with wearables, you have this challenge of just how expensive they are and, yeah. and who's paying for it. And then all the same challenges that, you know, I'm sure you guys have talked about over the years with just people get bored of them yeah. after a few weeks. They don't, they just forget to wear them. Um, I've, my Apple watch is sitting, getting charged and I haven't, I've been forgotten to wear it and wear it three days. So yeah. You know, that's that's a piece of the problem, too. Um, so I think, you know, again, it's it's not it's not going to be a, a perfect solution. And I definitely I think they are under pressure to try to adapt to COVID because every every company in health technology is right now. I, I, I find the wearable piece of it the hardest for me to understand in the sense that, like, why is there this? I get that health technology can help. And I, I get that wearables are going to be a part of, you know, making telehealth more useful for a lot of us. I don't think that with something as changing all the time as COVID um, or as hard to understand right now as COVID that they necessarily have to feel this pressure right now or, you know, it's something that they could, I don't know, I don't feel like they need to feel the this, this desire to be early detecting COVID-19 even though it will help. Does that make sense, yeah. Chrissy? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's, you know, to some extent, it, it could end up being a distraction because there yeah. there is technology that actually can help for COVID yes. that's more grounded in public health. Um, you know, people have written about the, the Kinsa connected thermometer, for instance. Mm. Um, that's that's a company that is is, you know, truly kind of connected and, and talking with public health every day, trying to figure out how how the solution can be. Yeah. effective for this problem um whereas i think some of these wearables companies that they sit more firmly in in the world of tech yeah and you know they want to do something and there's a potential for it to be useful for some people sometimes mm-hmm. um but it's it's you know oftentimes these sorts of things can get overhyped because it's just sexy the idea yeah. of a, a wearable detecting covid exactly i kind of feel like that's what it is right like i feel like they're like oh 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 we're a wearable company we're in health oh we we gotta say something we gotta do something so i mean it, it's it's 
a little bit, I think, um, early days to see if any of these will work. But I do think that in general, COVID and this pandemic has really brought a lot of interest to the overall telehealth and healthcare industry. I'm certain, I'm sure your workload has probably <laughs> increased a lot in the last few months as a health and health tech reporter. Uh, are you seeing a lot of developments in this space? Oh, yeah. I mean, telehealth is just the hottest space right now. Um, yeah. It's been around actually for a very long time, for decades, but yeah. we've never really seen utilization. You know, it's always been, they've th- these companies have always done these big employer contracts and, yep. and they report, you know, two to three percent of people ever really use it yep yep um so it's it's i don't know whether it's a marketing problem or a usability problem but you know it's definitely in part a a reimbursement problem Mm -hmm. um doctors in the past haven't exactly you know most for the most part haven't kind of flocked to it and and health systems have kind of wanted it to be at a a lower end because they make more money when you go in of course Um, but now it's just exploded. I mean, I've I've gone from seeing, I talked to one health system in New Orleans that mm-hmm. said they had about 3,000 total telehealth visits last year. And they've had six figures. I mean, over 100,000 yeah. just in the past several months. Um, so this is just insane growth. And the, I guess the question for me becomes, is it sustainable? Are some of the policy changes that were mm-hmm. put in place by the federal government to make telemedicine easier, are those sustainable? Yeah what happens in, in two to three months or is this a, a temporary blip? Yeah. Um, and my personal opinion on this now is that it does come down a bit. It, we're not mm-hmm. gonna, it's not going to sustain the levels that we saw in, in March and April, mm-hmm. but we still do see increased demand for at least the next year because there's a lot of people out there who are going to skip going to see you know, the doctor. Yeah. They're going to be too nervous to go in person. I, I'm with you. I agree that like, um, you know, some of the federal regulations, the FDA approvals may 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 not be lasting and they might just go away back to letting the insurance make uh, insurance providers make more money off of us from in-person visits. But I do think that overall, though, this growth and this surge in telehealth activity is going to be good for the healthcare infrastructure overall. I've spoken to a few people as well. One of the people I talked to, uh, I'm not sure if you've covered this company before, is the co-founder and CEO of Roe. I spoke with Zachariah Retano over there and he kind of like explained to me, um, for him, his dad is a doctor. So the relationship that he has with medicine and a medical and the healthcare system, whatever, is, is a little more like a friend friendly relationship rather than a, I have to I have to have a huge lump before I go in to see my doctor that sort of situation uh, and he you know reminded me I have people in my family that are doctors too and so for me yeah I'll go to my I'll ask my cousin what type of antibacterial wipe I should buy when Amazon's run out of Lysol and she's an ER doctor I really shouldn't be going to her for that sort of stuff um, but that's the thing that telehealth is is maybe what some people are hoping telehealth will do, which is let people there, let there be less friction between people going to see a doctor, you know, and therefore encourage them to be better about their health. Is this something you, you think is going to happen? Oh, absolutely. There are people in rural parts of the country that just don't yes. have easy access to a doctor at all. Yeah. And I think telemedicine, you know, granted they have some kind of device, um, yeah. you know, whether it's a smartphone or some kind of internet access, mm-hmm. I think can give them you know, a doctor that they can see primarily to talk about, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of family medicine, essentially. Um, but the other thing that's exciting that I'm seeing, you know, and Roe is kind of part of this trend is just mm. more specialization. So the first generation of, of telemed, it was just all kind of, it was trying to be kind of a one size fits yeah. all model. And now yeah. you're seeing companies pop up that 
are only treating trans patients, for instance. Mm, mm. And there, and that might seem like a, a smaller niche, although it's actually more than a million people in the US. Mm, mm. Um, but, you know, these are people that sometimes have to drive three states just to find a doctor that yeah. is trained in, you know, being able to have empathy and, and be able to do that, that job. Um, yeah. And it's now there's a way to do that online. Um, yeah. And I think those things are, are really a very promising aspect of, of yes. telemedicine. And I, I really like the way that companies are able now to to drill down on a more narrow group of users and like really hone in on what the need is. Uh, I'm going to ask what Dan thinks in a minute. But before we get to that, I, I you know, when I was talking to Z, we're going to uh, introduce a bit of the interview in this podcast. Uh, I, you know, he talks about the idea of not only just talking to your doctors more, but also as the system and as these devices gather more data about you, there's just much more information to work with as well. Uh, and he points out an example of how doctors can better understand how to treat or look at the symptoms and analyze the symptoms of something like prostate cancer. And this is what he had to say. You know, more recently, what people have been uh, seeing with with uh, PSA levels. So, so when you when you get your your prostate um, levels checked to see if you're at increased risk of prostate cancer, it used to be where people would look at the total value and say you're at risk if you're above two. You know, four to ten is is more dangerous. Um, but what they're now actually seeing is that the velocity of change of that blood test value is actually what is a greater indicator of a patient's risk. Of, of having prostate cancer. And so imagine if you're able to check a patient's PSA levels every six months, detect the velocity of change and automatically notify their doctor or their providers or a team of doctors if there was something that was in and out of range. And so, um, or, or, that, or, or that the velocity of change broke a certain speed or broke a certain barrier. You end up talking to a healthcare provider far earlier. And, and the earlier in your journey that you get care and that you can talk to a provider, the greater impact that you can have, right? The, 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 the more significant they, they can help you change the trajectory of that journey. And so I, th I think telemedicine is exactly as you described. There will be services, hopefully so many products and services built up that enable people to communicate with providers more continuously and really do see them as, as the friend who can help guide them through the healthcare system. So yeah, I think Z is saying that like the more info we gather with all these devices, there, there are better ways to, to serve people with chronic situations too. What do you think, Chrissy? Absolutely. And, you know, I... I definitely agree that this is kind of the the new era of medicine that we're moving into but mm -hmm. i do have one caveat which is just that you know there's this sort of big debate right now between the medical and the tech community about whether more data is actually yeah. going to make us healthier and it would seem reasonably or logically that it would mm -hmm. um but actually you know there are many circumstances where it doesn't yeah um because you know tests are faulty you yes. they're not always accurate and you know, sometimes if people are given a lot of information, um, it can lead to people getting overwhelmed and, and yeah. anxious. And, and oftentimes that leads to more tests and more procedures. And those come with their own risks of complications. So I yeah. think we should be striving for more data, um, but we should do so in a way that, you know, is, is backed by evidence and is responsible because the last thing we want is kind of a, an influx of the of the worried well oh, in, into our healthcare system. Dan, watching from from the UK, what 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 are you thinking about the healthcare system here? Um all I will say, given that the the experience in, over here in Europe is so very different, 
Um, my interest is really about whether this move to telehealth and, and whether the question of accessibility to healthcare completely is mm -hmm. an issue of public policy failure or whether it's an economic failure um, and whether we are reaching the point and, and maybe Chrissy, you can you can speak to this, that what we will have is we will have a, a, an increased stratification where you have people who have very good uh, insurance who get all of these things. And then you have people on so-so on insurance, but they've got access to all of these devices and, you know, can supply all of this data and can therefore take better care of themselves. And then the people who are sort of below that, who can't go out and buy uh, brand new smartphones to be able to contact uh, doctors through apps who mm -hmm. can't have you know who who simply don't have money in their budget for the subscriptions or the fees to pay for this sort of access and then don't have the devices are they then going to be left at the sort of very bottom of this food mm -hmm. chain not getting the care that they need yeah i mean you know this is a this is an issue and right now in the u.s we're seeing massive unemployment and here unlike mm -hmm. in the uk your your health insurance is very much tied to your employment um yeah so I don't know what's going to happen with tens of millions of more people outside of, you know, having a job and what's going to happen to Medicaid. Is it, are they going to be able to handle the influx? And, mm -hmm. you know, there's definitely going to be more people that just don't have insurance. We already have tens of millions who just simply don't have any kind of health coverage. Yeah. Um, so all of that is is a cause for concern. And, and when we talk about things like wearables and smartphone apps, we have to bear in mind that there are people right now that are looking to not spend money um, yep. if they if they can you know get away with it. So we've got to make sure that we're not just creating solutions for people that can afford to spend a few hundred dollars on a yeah. on a wearable or an or an app because I think we're about to see just even more disparity of, of health outcomes here in the US. And, and, and it's, you know, there's also, we have an issue here of just certain states having different policies yep. around COVID. Um, yep. And because of those policies being different, some states have got, you know, huge outbreaks at the moment yes. um, versus, versus others. And, you know, in Europe, um, you can, you know, the UK and, and Germany and other countries are able to come up with a more centralized plan and, and people in general, you know, I may be wrong on this, but it seems like they're sort of generally following the public health guidelines yeah. um, in a way that, you know, isn't necessarily happening here across the board. So it's it's very different. Um, yeah. I miss the UK. I miss the Aww. NHS and I used to complain about it. <laughs> never, I'm never going to complain about it again. Oh, girl. Uh, you know what? There's so much I would love to pick your brain on. I will continue talking to you off of this podcast, but I do know you have to go. We're really, really grateful you were able to join us today, Chrissy. Thanks, Chrissy. Thanks, guys. This is really fun. Be happy to chat about this anytime. And that's it for our very long episode today, everyone. Thank you as always for listening. Our theme music is by game composer Neil North. Our outro music is by our very own Terrence O'Brien. The podcast is produced by Ben Elman. You can find Dan online at Daniel W. Cooper on Twitter. And if you need me, I am talking somewhat intermittently at Sherlyn Lowe on Twitter. Email us your thoughts at podcast.engadget.com. Leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe on anything that gets podcasts, including Spotify. We will not be around next week because it's the 4th of July weekend. So go listen to an old episode or come back in two weeks for a fresh new one.
Oh, wow. Man, okay. 